Wan Nataprila with his Shura's Suta, the Drocht of March hath pierced to the Ruta, and bathed every vein in switch liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the fleur. Welcome to A Beginner's Guide to Chaucer, a podcast series that offers the beginner an insight into the life and times of English writer Geoffrey Chaucer and why his most notable work, The Canterbury Tales, still has relevance today. My name is Karen Carey, and I'll be chatting with Marion Turner, the J.R.R. Tolkien Professor of English Literature and Language here at the University of Oxford. Hello, and welcome to Chores of Beginners. In this episode, we're going to examine one of the more popular tales, The Miller's Tale. So, Marion, can you give us a brief summary of the plot and introduce the main characters from The Miller's Tale? Yes, of course. So, in The Miller's Tale, first of all, it's set in Oxford. So, obviously, we are here talking in Oxford today, um, and it's the only one of the Canterbury Tales that's set in Oxford. And it's the story of a carpenter, his wife, their lodger, and another young man. So, you can probably already guess from that the kind of story that it's going to be. So John has a much younger wife called Alison. They have a student lodger called Nicholas. Nicholas um, admires Alison greatly, and she also has another admirer called Absalom, who doesn't live in the house. So John is a devoted older husband who adores his wife and, and, and trusts her. So Nicholas persuades Alison um, that they should they should have sex, they should have an, have an affair. But it's really, I think, notable that he doesn't want to have this affair unless the husband is in the house and they are tricking the husband. So he comes up with this really elaborate plot. So he pretends to, he locks himself in his room. He looks, he has all these astronomical instruments and he's kind of looking at magical things and prophecies and and, and so on and John gets very worried about him and Nicholas tells him in secret that he's found out that Noah's flood is going to come again and this has got to be a great secret but he's thought of a way that just the three of them so Nicholas, John Larson can be saved and they are all going to, he knows exactly when the flood is going to come. They're all going to get these kinds of tubs that they're going to be able to use as boats. They're going to string them up in the rafters of the house. They all have to go in them and be really silent because that's a that's a rule. They've got to be silent up there. And then when the flood comes, they'll have axes up there as well. When the flood comes, they'll cut the ropes and they'll fall down into the water and they'll be saved because they're in their little boats. So John is is horrified that this flood is coming, especially because he's so worried about his beloved wife and he's completely credulous. He agrees to do this. He, they're all going to get up there, sit in their little boats all night in silence. That's what they're going to do. So, and of course, after they get up there, Nicholas and Alison silently climb down. They have sex with each other. Meanwhile, Absalom who also is interested in Alison, comes up to the dark window and calls to Alison and wants her to to come over. So he says, you know, please, please, you know, give me a kiss, give me a kiss. You know, put your face out of the window and give me a kiss. So she, you know, laughs, goes over to the window eventually and puts her bottom out of the window. So he gives it a kiss 
And then he realizes that something has happened and he goes away saying, hang on, I didn't think a woman had a beard. So he works out that he has been tricked and he is now furious. So off he goes to the blacksmiths and he gets, and this is where it gets pretty dark, he gets a, a red hot implement, a, a kind of plowshare, so a, a kind of sharp um, implement from the from the the furnace in the in the blacksmiths goes back to John's house um calls Alison again and says come back you know i want another kiss this time nicholas runs goes over to the window and and um absolutely say well where are you where are you so nicholas farts out of the window to show him where he is at which point Absalom smites him with this implement into nicholas's bottom um which is itself, you know, a, a kind of obviously a, a sexual act in, in various ways. So this red hot implement, go, you know, is whacked onto poor Nicholas's bottom. Nicholas screams, water, water. At which point, of course, John thinks, oh, my God, the flood has come. Noah's flood is here again. Cuts his rope you know, to get his boat down into the waters because he can hear Nicholas shouting, water, water, down goes his boat. But of course, there is no water. It smashes down through the house. John's arm is broken. He's he's dazed. He's looking around. All the neighbours run into the house. John can see what's happened and starts trying to explain what's happened. Alison and Nicholas say, well, you know, he's mad. Don't listen to him. Everyone laughs at John and says, you know, and we're told no one listens to his reason. He's just seen as an absolute idiot. And then we're told at the end, well, you know, Absalom has has kissed the, has kissed a bum. Um, Nicholas has been branded and burnt. John has broken his arm and been cuckolded. That's the moral of the story. <laughs> and that's the end. So Alison's the only one that comes out with <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, she's the only one who doesn't get punished. So it's a very, very funny, very intricately plotted, very clever story. It's told at a really, really fast pace. You know, so it moves really, really fast. But there's also, which you might not have got from my plot description, there's some beautiful imagery in it. Lots and lots of similes, metaphors. The description of when they're actually having their adulterous sex is really beautiful. The, the bells are ringing in the chapel nearby. There's all kinds of really interesting things about the way it's told as well as about this farcical, ludicrous, hilarious plot. So the Miller's Tale is often characterised as a, a fablio. As, yeah. As a, as a sort of genre known for its humour and bawdy content. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. So Chaucer has quite a few tales which are fablio tales. And in this case, the fablio is set against the romance. So the first Canterbury tale, the Knight's Tale, is a romance. The second Canterbury tale, the Miller's Tale, is a fablio. Those two genres usually, not always, but usually are doing quite opposing things. So the romance is a story which is often set far, far away and long, long ago, whereas the fablio is set in the here and now. You know, this very recognisable place. It's in Oxford. It's nearby for Chaucer's um, listeners and readers. And it's set in the present moment. Very recognisable, you know, recognisable um, houses, people, clothes, activities. The romance is usually about um, serious matters, whereas the fablio is funny. The romance is usually 
about a continuation of hierarchy and patriarchy. It usually ends in marriage and the upholding of the the power of of patriarchs. The Fablio, really importantly, is about humiliating patriarchs. So usually Fablio are about adultery and adultery that that doesn't get doesn't get kind of punished and exposed in in a in a um in a strong way so husbands are humiliated and of course we literally see the downfall of the patriarch he is literally brought down from the height to the to the floor in when he cuts down his boat in the miller's tail so we see this metaphorical dethroning and also this literal being brought low in something like romance there is usually a, a sense that um that the good triumph, that there is a, a, a clear morality. In Fabio, the smart triumph, you know, being clever, being sharp, you know, winning. That's what matters, not being good and moral. It's usually an amoral genre where it's not about whether you're good or bad. It's about whether you win, whether it works or not. So it's a very interesting genre, very popular. There's lots of French fablio. And then, you know, there's lots of Italian fablio. So in the Decameron, Boccaccio's Decameron, he tells a lot of of, of fablio tales um, and the several in the Canterbury Tales. So it's a very very, um, popular genre. And although it's often about, oh yeah, another important difference is that romance is often about important people. So princesses, knights, Fablio is usually about ordinary people. So in this case, the, the carpenter, his wife, um, the, 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 the following Fablio in the Canterbury Tales is about um, a miller. The following one is about an apprentice. You know, so ordinary, low-class people. But importantly, the audience for Fablio was not low-class people. Romance and Fablio had the same audience, you know, which was mainly people of, 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 of higher classes, but they, they weren't, the audiences weren't separated by, by class. You know, rich people liked Fablio as much as they liked romance. Mm. Okay, so the the Miller is um, the Miller's Tale is set in Oxford. Yeah, why is there any connection to Oxford from with, as far as George is concerned, or is it just I know like the wife of is from Bath and yeah. and, and so when. When Chaucer put together his Pilgrim Company and when he put together the Canterbury Tales, he's interested in geographical variety and diversity as well as in other kinds of variety and and diversity. So when we look at the Pilgrims, you know, we have someone from Bath, as you just mentioned, someone from Dartmouth, um, for example, someone from London in the tales. So we have this this tale is set in Oxford, the next one in Cambridge, um, the next one after that in London. The one in Cambridge also features characters who come from Northumberland, for example. So he is interested in trying to make the Canterbury Tales into a, a set of stories which relates to lots of different parts of of England in particular, you know, not so much the other parts of the of the British Isles. There's also lots of Canterbury Tales that are set in different parts of Europe as well in terms of that, that geographic variety. Um, I mean, Chaucer certainly knew Oxford as quite a young man. He came to Woodstock, for example, um, when he was in 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 the Great Household. Later on, his um, his son married a, a great Oxfordshire heiress, and in fact, Chaucer's son and granddaughter are buried in a place called Ewelm, which is just a few miles from from Oxford. And Chaucer spent time in this area. But it's not an area he was especially connected to. There's no evidence he had any connection with any any university, for example. In, in both this story and the next one in the Canterbury Tales, so in the Reeves Tale and the Miller's Tale, the students are important presences. You know, so this idea of the 
the locals and the students and their their antagonism and one group you know beating the the other group that that kind of thing so i think those kinds of university towns did provide that kind of of, of example um so i think it's a it, it's it's typical of his overall the overall sense of what he's doing in the Canterbury Tales rather than Oxford specifically being a really important place for Chaucer on its own, if you see what I mean. I, I find it quite ironic that the most sort of raucous of the of the pilgrims comes from Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> the seat of learning. So. Mm. Yeah, and it's this town gown story, you know, that we have the the kind of the ordinary locals and there's an important abbey, Osney Abbey is important in it as well. So we also get that sense that this isn't a place which is just the university, which is really important to remember today as well. You know, that in the Miller's Tale we have the the abbey, the the religious orders of the time who, who are kind of um, a separate part of the social hierarchy. We have your ordinary working people. We also have the students and all those people are interacting together as part of a, a kind of ecology. Yeah. So the Reeve is from Cambridge, is it? Well, the, the tale is set in Cambridge. Set, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's still that Oxford-Cambridge sort of yeah, yeah. Going, thing, yeah. thing going on even then. Um, so how does the Miller's Tale reflect that sort of social and cultural norms of Chaucer's time? I mean, obviously you, you were saying that... Um, Sex was obviously talked about an awful lot more in those days. Um, yeah, I mean, that's and it's so important for people to to realise that that you know it's much later, hundreds of years later, that people get more uncomfortable about talking about sex, and there's a lot more censoring of of discussions of sex. So, in the medieval era, people were really open about talking about sex and the body. You know, in a separate episode, we talk about the wife of Bath, who talks openly about her genitalia and sexual pleasure and so on. And then when we get to the 18th century that all gets censored out of versions of, of the wife of bath for example but it was quite common to talk about bodily things in the middle ages and you know when you look up at um at gargoyles on churches for example or on misericords which are kind of flip up seats in the choirs of, of churches there's often really kind of outrageous carvings you know at, in in religious houses and, and people were were fine about that really so i think that's an an important thing to remember that a lot of censorship comes later. Of course, we sometimes get bits of, of censorship in this era, but not that much, not compared with later. People were comfortable talking about sex, talking about female sexual pleasure as well as male sexual pleasure. People talk about rape and sexual violence, about domestic violence. And people also were very comfortable talking about things like farting. I mean, there's another tale which has a a, a huge section in it about farting and dividing up a fart and the you know I mean bodily functions are openly discussed and in the Canterbury Tales people often swear and they when they're swearing they refer to to turds for example or you know there's a bit where you know, the Chaucer figure tells a story that's notoriously bad deliberately bad and then the response is you know your drasty your shitty rhyming is not worth a turd you know for example and that was a, a, a kind of perfectly normal way to insult people at, at the time. And people thought it was fine to put that into poetry and literature. So are there any elements of the tale that um, people might, that modern readers might find difficult to understand these days or, or not? Do you think it's fairly straightforward? Well, I think that it's, I think that some people might say, well, it's so, it's so absurd because it is, it's supposed to be absurd. So it's supposed to be highly stylized. You know, the way that the different plots come together, it's not supposed to be a realist text. And sometimes people think because aspects of it are realist in terms of the 
the the kind of the body down to earthness that we were talking about. But generically, it's not supposed to be reflecting reality in a simple way. You know, no one actually expects you to believe that in this Noah's flood plot and in that plot, perfectly interacting with the plowshare plot and the branding and the and, and the water. So that sense that you have to to suspend your disbelief in terms of thinking about genre and what, what's demanded by by genre. And of course, as with many of the Canterbury Tales, you do have to have really some understanding of the religious underpinning. So of things like Noah's Flood, which, you know, of some of the, the biblical underpinning of that to, to grasp what's going on, I think. But I think a lot of the Miller's Tale, it is humour that completely works today. And usually when people read it, they do find it really, really funny. And again, as I mentioned, this incredibly fast pace, you're just drawn through it. There's so much happening. It's so comic. The dialogue is really pops. You know, it's just, it is a, it is a very funny read. So how does um, the Miller's Tale portray the gender roles? Yeah, I mean, so I think there are really, just, there are some disturbing things about the the gender roles. So I think that one interesting thing is to set it in the context of the story that comes before. So the story that comes before is The Knight's Tale, which is a romance. And a cursory reading, you know, that, that's a story that ends in marriage. You might think, well, that's a story that has more respect for women than this, you know, kind of filthy, adulterous Miller's Tale. But in actual fact, in The Knight's Tale, the heroine, Emily, does not want to get married. She is an Amazon. She's an Amazon captive. And she says, I don't want to be, I don't want to marry anyone. I want to walk in the woods wild. I don't want to be a wife and be with child. I do not want to. And she is forced to be married. She has no choice about about that. In The Miller's Tale, Alison does have a choice. You know, she she chooses this to have sex with Nicholas and she chooses not to have sex with Absalom, her other her other suitor. That's not to say that I think she's some kind of feminist heroine. She is depicted in many ways as quite animalistic. You know, one way of, of and she's compared to lots of animals. She's very um very much of the body. Um one way of reading the fact that she's not punished is that she's not seen as a moral being in the way that that the men are, for example. Um, but it's interesting to, to look at, to think about her role. As I say, I think it's actually better to be a woman in a fabulio than it is to be a woman in a romance, in fact, often. Um, I think it's also always crucial to remember that none of these tales reflect the view of the author. They reflect the teller. So Chaucer is always hiding behind a whole series of different narrators and tellers. And when you look at the sweep of the Canterbury Tales, you see lots and lots of different kinds of female characters and kinds of, uh, and, and different women. So what we see in the Fablio and in the romance is a reflection of what those genres usually usually demand of different gender roles, if you see what I mean. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so where am I going now? Where am I going now? Uh... I've lost my track here. Um, so how does The Miller's Tale compare to the other tales with the Canterbury Tales? I mean, is it the bawdiest one there or are there, uh, you know, are there others that sort of compare? There are certainly others that compare. So I think overall, if we were ranking, I would put it as the bawdiest um, because it has it has so much there that we've, that we've discussed. But, I mean, another one is The Merchant's Tale, which does feature people having sex in a tree. Again, adulterous sex, in a tree, which is quite, quite interesting to think about. Let's just think about that for a moment. Um, so, um, so the merchant's tale is another one. The um, 
the Reeves tale, the Cook's tale, the Shipman's tale, these are all stories about adultery, um, which are quite explicit about sex, about sex as something which is transactional, physical, bodily, bawdy. And so it's a genre that keeps recurring across the Canterbury Tales. But again, the fact that it's... um interspersed that this genre is interspersed lots of other genres of course matters and you know when you when you do get adaptations that only put together the the body um fablio that gives a very skewed view of chaucer because it's only one thing that he does but he is absolutely not a one-trick pony these are kind of interspersed with lots of other kinds of stories and i think that one interesting thing to do is indeed to compare those different fablio, but it's also absolutely crucial to compare what the Miller's Tale is doing with what the Knight's Tale is doing, because the Knight's Tale, the previous tale, the great romance, the first story of the Canterbury Tales, the Miller says explicitly, I'm going to quite the Knight's Tale. He says that the point of his tale is to reply to the Knight's Tale, to give a to give a kind of counter view. Now, The Knight's Tale is a story in which, it's a classical story in which Theseus um, is a great conqueror, a great ruler, a great duke. Um, he you know, forcibly marries Hippolyta, captures her sister Emily, then captures two, two knights, um, Palamon and Arcetor. They're in prison. They both fall in love with Emily. They end up you know, both getting out of prison, they compete for her. There's a, there's a huge tournament, you know, decide who's going to win her. Eventually, one of them does end up married to her. This is a story with lots of philosophy in it, lots of Boethian speeches. But essentially, if you look at that story and you look at the Miller's Tale, these are stories in which there is a patriarch who is supposed to control the sexual destiny of a woman. The woman has two suitors. One of those suitors ends up having sex with her. Right. They are quite parallel in many ways. So to an extent, the Miller has taken that very bald plot. Now, of course, genre matters. Of course, tone matters. That's kind of the point. That he takes that basic plot and says, well, if you put it in a different genre, if you give the woman actually a different kind of autonomy, if you make it funny, and if you take away a lot of the elevated language, because a lot of a lot of the knight's tale, you know, it it does what romance does, which is it aestheticizes violence. So you're kind of made to think, well, violence is something glorious and beautiful. The way, of course, we don't think that, but partly, you know, this idea of chivalry, you know, these this is all very noble. And then when it becomes someone, you know, hitting someone on the bum with a, a, a plowshare, but is it so different? These are men violently competing over a woman. Is that really so different? Similarly, you know, the Knight's Tale has a lot of speeches about, you know, Venus and love. But these men have never met this woman. They've just seen her in a garden and they're talking this talk. But really, they want to have sex with her. And that's, again, made very bald in the Miller's Tale. Now, of course, you could say, well, you, it, it, you shouldn't reduce it all to that because actually the finer feelings do matter. You know, they think they have these feelings, even if we don't think that. And that does matter. And I agree with that. The tone, the way things are expressed, that, that matters. You know, the Miller is someone who does not seem to have any understanding of of deeper feelings, of what we what we say to ourselves about what, what matters to us. The knight, on the other hand, is completely obfuscating the reality of, of sex and violence. So neither of them has a perfect view of the world. You know, they're both skewed in various ways, 
But it's really interesting to compare, well, what happens when you take that basic story, men competing over a woman, patriarch, and you put them into different genres, you put them into different tellers, voices, you give one to someone who wants to believe in a certain set of values and another to someone who thinks a completely different thing about values. And I think, again, when we only look at one Canterbury tale, we lose a lot. You know, once you've read one, you have to read more because when you see them alongside others, you understand so much more what what Chaucer might be doing. That sounds like a perfect place to finish that one. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Marion. You have been listening to A Beginner's Guide to Chaucer. You can listen to other episodes in this series on the University of Oxford's podcast site or on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to learn more about Professor Marion Turner's work on Chaucer, then please follow the link in the description. Thank you for listening.